Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Oh. And now, how's that? Yeah. And now it's been expanded. Um, but anyway, I'll read a couple of passages, and and then we can we can talk. And if no one's got anything to ask me, I'll read something else. Um, anyway, uh, these five novels uh, really track Patrick Melrose, who's the central character, from the age of five in Nevermind uh, to the age of um, 45 in At Last, where he's um, attending his mother's funeral. And um, he's uh, has a very unhappy childhood with a very cruel, uh, sadistic, uh, paedophile of a father and a rather sort of hopeless, drunken mother. Anyway, the, I'm going to read from the third uh, volume where he's by this time aged 30. This is called Some Hope. Um, and he's uh, going to this very big party in a house in the country um, owned by someone called Sonny and Princess Margaret is invited to this party um, and Nicholas is an old family friend of uh, Patrick's father David Melrose and a great you know, fan of David Melrose who's a monstrous man um, so I'll read I'll just read this bit to begin with. Shall I have some water to begin with? Um, Sonny's inner circle, the 40 guests who were dining at Cheatley before the party, hung about in the yellow room, unable to sit down before Princess Margaret chose to. Do you believe in God, Nicholas? asked Bridget, introducing Nicholas Pratt into the conversation she was having with Princess Margaret. Nicholas rolled his eyeballs wearily as if someone had tried to revive a tired old piece of scandal. What intrigues me, my dear, is whether he still believes in us, or have we given the supreme schoolmaster a nervous breakdown? In any case, I think it was one of the Bibescos who said, to a man of the world, the universe is a suburb. <laughs> I don't like the sound of your friend Bibesco, said Princess Margaret, wrinkling her nose. How can the universe be a suburb? It's too silly. What I think he meant, ma'am, <laughs> replied Nicholas, 
is that sometimes the largest questions are the most trivial because they cannot be answered. While the seemingly trivial ones, like where one sits at dinner, he gave this example while raising his eyebrows at Bridget, are the most fascinating. Aren't people funny? I don't find where one sits at dinner fascinating at all, lied the princess. <laughs> Besides, as you know, she went on, my sister's the head of the Church of England, and I don't like listening to atheistic views. People think they're being so clever, but it just shows a lack of humility. <laughs> Silencing Nicholas and Bridget with her disapproval, the princess took a gulp from her glass of whiskey. Apparently it's on the increase, she said enigmatically. What is, ma'am? asked Nicholas. Child abuse, said the princess. I was at a concert for the NSPCC last weekend and they told me it's on the increase. <clears throat> Perhaps it's just that people are more inclined to wash their dirty linen in public nowadays, said Nicholas. Frankly, I find that tendency much more worrying than all this fuss about child abuse. Children probably didn't even realize they were being abused until they had to watch it on television every night. I believe in America they've started suing their parents for bringing them up badly. Really, giggled the princess. <laughs> I must tell mummy, she'll be fascinated. <laughs> Nicholas burst out laughing. But seriously, ma'am, the thing that worries me isn't all this child abuse, but the appalling way people spoil their children these days. Isn't it dreadful, gasped the princess. <laughs> I see more and more children with absolutely no discipline at all. It's frightening. Terrifying, Nicholas confirmed. But I don't think that the NSPCC were talking about our world, she said the princess, generously extending to Nicholas the circle of light that radiated from her presence. <laughs> what it really shows is the emptiness of the socialist dream. They thought that every problem could be solved by throwing money at it, but it simply isn't true. People may have been poor, but they were happy. <laughs> because they lived in real communities. My mother says that when she visited the East End during the Blitz, she met more people with real dignity than one could hope to find in the entire corps diplomatique. <laughs> so, um, anyway, then after that, which is... The first three books are very centered on Patrick's relationship with his appalling father, and then the fourth book, Mother's Milk, which is all, they're all four collected in this, in this one Picador volume now, um, is about his mother's decision to disinherit him in favor of a feeble-minded sort of neo-shamanic charity that she's um, fallen under the spell of. And there's this Irish charlatan called Seamus Dork who takes the house from her and, and, um, and she thinks she's saving the world and being a good person. So, um, the, and then in at last, uh, we have a confluence of the two stories, the paternal and the maternal stories. Um, and what I want to read now is from at last when Patrick's thinking about uh, what it means to him to have lost this house in France where he spent his childhood and that he was, there was a place of appalling uh, torment but was also very beautiful and a place in which he found a kind of magical protection in the landscape. 
and among the uh, among the animals and so forth around the house. Um, and have some more water. For a long time, the feeling of madness brought on by the loss of his French home had made it impossible to get over his resentment of Eleanor. That's his mother. Oh, and I should say Thomas and Robert are his sons, who appear, I think, later in this section. Without Saint-Nazaire, a primitive part of him was deprived of the imaginary care that had kept him sane as a child. He was certainly attached to the beauty of the place, but much more deeply to a secret protection that he dare not renounce in case it left him utterly destroyed. The shifting faces formed by the cracked stains and hollows of the limestone mountain opposite the house used to keep him company. The line of pine trees along its ridge was like a column of soldiers coming to his rescue. There were hiding places where nobody had ever found him, and vine terraces to jump down, giving him the feeling that he could fly when he had to flee. There was a dangerous well where he could drown rocks and clods of earth without drowning himself. The most heroic connection of all was with the gecko that had taken custody of his soul in a moment of crisis and dashed out onto the roof to safety and to exile. How could it ever find him again if Patrick wasn't there anymore? On his last night in Saint-Nazaire, there was a spectacular storm. Sheet lightning flickered behind ribbed banks of cloud, making the dark bowl of the valley tremble with light. At first, fat tropical raindrops dented the dusty ground, but soon enough, rivulets guttered down the steep paths and little waterfalls flowed from step to step. Patrick wandered outside into the warm, heavy rain, feeling mad. He knew that he had to end his magical contract with this landscape, but the electric air and the violent protests of the storm renewed the archaic mentality of a child as if the same thick piano was hammered by the thunder and pelting rain ran through his body and the land. With water streaming down his face, there was no need for tears, no need to scream with the sky cracking overhead. He stood in the drive among the milky puddles and the murmur of new streams and the smell of wet rosemary until he sank to the ground, weighed down by what he was unable to give up and sat motionless in the gravel and the mud. Forked lightning landed like antlers on the limestone mountain. In that sudden flash, he made out a shape on the ground between him and the wall that ran along the edge of the drive. Concentrating in the murky light, he saw that a toad had ventured out into the watery world beyond the laurel bushes, where Patrick imagined it had been waiting all summer for the rain, and was now resting gratefully on a bar of muddy ground between two puddles. They f sat in front of each other, perfectly still. Patrick pictured the white corpses of the toads he used to see each spring at the bottom of the stone pools. Around their spent bodies, hundreds of soft black tadpoles clung to the grey-green algae on the walls or wriggled across the open pond or overflowed into the runnels that carried the water from pool to pool between the source and the stream in the crease of the valley. Some of the tadpoles slipped limply down the slope. Others swam frantically against the current. 
Robert and Thomas spent hours each Easter holiday removing the little dams that formed overnight. And when the covered parts of the channel were blocked and the grass around the lower pond flooded, airlifted the stranded tadpoles in their cupped hands. Patrick could remember doing the same thing as a child and the sense of giant compassion that he used to feel as he released them back into the safety of the pond through his flooding fingers. In those days there had been a chorus of frogs during the spring nights and during the day sitting on the lily pads in the crescent pond bullfrogs blowing their insides out like bubblegum. But in the system of imaginary protection that the land used to allow him, it was the lucky tree frogs that really counted. If only he could touch one of them, everything would be all right. They were hard to find. The round suckers on the tips of their feet meant that they could hang anywhere in the tree, camouflaged by the bright green of a new leaf or an unripe fig. When he did see one of these tiny frogs, fixed to the smooth gray bark, its brilliant skin stretched over the, a sharp skeleton. It looked to him like pulsing jewelry. He would reach out his index finger and touch it lightly for good luck. It might only have happened once, but he'd thought about it a thousand times. That's it. Right. So, <laughs> I don't know what to do next. I mean, uh, um, I haven't been told about the format, really. We need some more. Or well, you could answer, que I could answer questions. Are you working on another book now? I am, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, writing another book that's um, not, not involving the same characters at all. Now these five books have reached a conclusion, that's why at last is called at last. Actually it took me so long to write, well, it took me five years and it's not that long as you can see. Um, I decided to call it at last first of all um, as a kind of joke because I thought I could write at last a novel by Edward St. Aubin and, <coughs> and send, it, send it to my agent. And, um, and then it became the title, so what can you do? But as it sat at a funeral, there was some other point to it as well, you know. Um, so I'm writing a new novel with new characters, and um, but but I'm not ruling out the return of of Patrick Melrose because I thought I'd finished with him when I wrote the first three books, and then he came back, and I thought I'd write another trilogy. And in fact, I ended the story with the fifth book. So I'm, I'm, I'm usually wrong. Everything I say is wrong, basically. So if I tell you I, I finished with him, you can assume he'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Sometime, yeah. But not yet. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, yes, after the first three um, Patrick Melrose books, I, I wrote two other novels. One was, um, one was set in California, oddly enough, in, in Esalen. And, um, and then 
I, th I really thought I'd finished with the Melroses. So when I, when I wrote Mother's Milk, um, all the characters had different names. But I'd replicated the situation. There was a house in France very like it, a, an insanely philanthropic mother very like Eleanor Melrose. Everything, I realized I'd just created a simulacrum of the, of the world uh, in the first three books. So I sort of came clean and changed all the names, um, which I, I thought I could do on a computer with one click. Um, but I did something wrong, so I'm not very good with So I suddenly had, um, I was changing Mark to Patrick. I suddenly had things called Super uh, Patrickettes and, um, and instead of, uh, and um, someone unfortunately had um, uh, Puncher Patricks on her arm. Um, but uh, so I hadn't, I hadn't sort of got it quite right. Then it took a, a good three weeks to weed out all the um, the super Patricettes. Yeah. Anyway, um, but these characters are very, you know, they're they're deep in my psyche. So a lot of them are invented. Nicholas Pratt, you know, the awful man who's talking to Princess Margaret in the first scene I read to you. Um, Nicholas Pratt is, is totally invented um, and yet he, he stands for something that I, I know very well. Um, and I, I, I could always sort of do more Nicholas Pratt except that, except that I've killed him in this book. <laughs> so, so we'll have to have flashbacks. What? The beginning of it last, I, okay. Um, Sure. I mean, it's quite long. It's a, it's a, it's sort of monologue from this appalling man, and he comes back. It's his return because he was best friends with, um, with David Melrose, with um, Patrick's monstrous father. It's the fact that he turns up unexpectedly at Eleanor Melrose's funeral that brings back the concerns of the first three books with, with cruelty and with the misuse of power and with snobbery and so forth uh, into, into the, uh, the world that was established by Mother's Milk, which is um, really about the mother's confusions. Um, okay, so Nicholas Pratt wasn't expected at this funeral, but he turns up. Surprised to see me, said Nicholas Pratt, planting his walking stick on the crematorium carpet and fixing Patrick with a look of slightly aimless defiance, a habit no longer useful but too late to change. I've become rather a memorial creeper, one's bound to at my age. It's no use sitting at home guffawing over the ignorant mistakes of juvenile obituaries or giving in to the rather monotonous pleasure of counting the daily quota of extinct contemporaries. No, one has to celebrate the life. There goes the school tart, they say he had a good war, but I know better. That sort of thing put the whole achievement in perspective. Mind you, I'm not saying it isn't all very moving. 
as a sort of swelling orchestra effect these last days, and plenty of horror, of course, padding about on my daily rounds from hospital bed to memorial pew and back again. I'm reminded of those oil tankers that used to dash themselves onto the rocks every other week, and the flocks of birds dying on the beaches with their wings stuck together and their bewildered yellow eyes blinking. Nicholas glanced into the room. Thinly attended, he murmured as if preparing a description for someone else. Are these people your mother's religious friends? Too extraordinary. What colour would you call that suit? Aubergine? Aubergine à la crème d'oursin? I must go to Huntsman and get one knocked up. What do you mean you have no aubergine? Everyone was wearing it at Eleanor Melrose's. Order a mile of it straight away. I suppose your aunt will be here soon. She'll be an all-too-familiar face amidst the aubergines. I s <clears throat> I saw her last week in New York, and I'm pleased to say I was the first to tell her the tragic news about your mother. She burst into tears and ordered a croque-monsieur to swallow with her second helping of diet pills. I felt sorry for her and got her asked to dinner with the Blands. Do you know Freddie Bland? He's the smallest billionaire alive. His parents were practically dwarfs, like General and Mrs. Tom Thumb. They used to come into the room with a tremendous fanfare and then disappear under a console table. <laughs> Baby Bland has taken to being serious the way some people do in their senile twilight. She, she's decided to write a book about cubism of all ridiculous subjects. I think it's really part of her being a perfect wife. She knows what a state Freddie used to get into over her birthday, but thanks to her new hobby, all he has to do now is to get Sotheby's to wrap up a revolting painting of a woman with a face like a slice of watermelon by that arch-fake Picasso, and he knows that she'll be over the moon. Do you know what Baby said to me at breakfast, if you please, when I was almost defenseless? Nicholas put on a simpering voice. Those divine birds in late brock are really just an excuse for the sky. Such a good excuse, I said, choking on my first sip of coffee. So much better than a lawnmower or a pair of clogs. It shows he was in complete control of his material. Serious, you see. It's a fate I shall resist with every last scrap of my intelligence, unless Herr Dr. Alzheimer takes over, in which case I'll have to write a book about Islamic art to show that the Talheads have always been much more civilized than us, or a fat volume about how little we know about Shakespeare's mother's top-secret Catholicism. Something serious. Anyway, I'm afraid Aunt Nancy rather bombed with the Blands. It must be hard to be exclusively social and entirely friendless at the same time. <laughs> Poor thing. But do you know what struck me, apart from Nancy's vibrant self-pity, which she had the nerve to pretend was grief, what struck me about those two girls, your mother and your aunt, was that they are were, my life is spent wobbling between tenses, completely American. Their father's connection with the Highlands was, let's face it, entirely liquid. And after your grandmother sacked him, he was hardly ever around. He spent the war with those dimwits, the Windsors in Nassau, Monte Carlo after the war, and finally founded in the bar of whites, of the tribe who are blind drunk every day of their lives from lunch until bedtime. He was by far the most charming, but frustrating, I think, as a father. 
At that level of drunkenness, one's essentially trying to embrace a drowning man. The odd eruption of sentimentality for the 20 minutes the drink took him that way was no substitute for the steady flow of self-sacrificing kindness that has always inspired my own efforts as a father. With what I admit have been mixed results. As I'm sure you know, Amanda hasn't spoken to me for the last 15 years. I blame her therapist, filling her never very brilliant little head with Freudian ideas about her doting papa. <laughs> Nicholas's round style of delivery was fading into an increasingly urgent whisper, and the knuckles of his blue-veined hands were white from the effort of holding himself upright. Well, my dear, we'll have another little chat after the ceremony. It's been marvellous finding you on such good form. My condolences and all that, although if ever there was a merciful release, it was in the case of your poor mother. I've become something of a Florence Nightingale in my old age, but even the lady with the lamp had to beat a retreat in the face of that terrifying ruin. It's bound to act as a break on the rush to get me canonized, but I prefer to pay visits to people who can still enjoy a bitchy remark and a glass of champagne. <laughs> he seemed about to leave, but then turned back. Try not to be bitter about the money. One or two friends of mine who've made a mess of that side of things have ended up dying in national health wards, and I must say I've been very impressed by the humanity of the mostly foreign staff. Mind, <coughs> mind you, <laughs> what is there to do with money except spend it when you've got it and be bitter about it when you haven't. It's a very limited commodity in which people invest the most extraordinary emotions. What I suppose I really mean is do be bitter about the money. It's one of the few things it can do, siphon off some of bitterness. Do-gooders have sometimes complained that I have too many bêtes noires, but I need my bêtes noir to get the noir out of me and into the bet. Besides, that side of your family has had a good run. What is it now? Six generations with every single descendant, not just the eldest son, essentially idle. They may have taken on the camouflage of work, especially in America, where everyone has to have an office, if only to swivel about with their shoes on the desk for half an hour before lunch. But there's been no necessity. It must be rather thrilling, although I can't speak from experience, for you and your children after this long exemption from competition to get stuck in. God knows what I would have made of my life if I hadn't divided my time between town and country, between home and abroad, between wives and mistresses. I have divided time and now does time divide me? What? I must take a closer look at these religious fanatics your mother surrounded herself with. Nicholas hobbled off with no pretense that he expected any response other than silent fascination. Um, well, I first tried to write a novel when I was 12. Um, I didn't, didn't get it published. Um, I'm relieved to say. Um, but so it's always seemed to me uh, the, um, 
an obligation to write. You know, it's, it's been my vocation from the earliest time I can remember. I think P.G. Woodhouse was asked this, and he said he first wrote when he was five, so he's a bit ahead of me. Um, he said, I don't know what I was doing before that, just loafing about, I suppose. <laughs> you know, so, so I was sort of loafing about, and then I started writing. Yeah. You mentioned Nicholas was a completely imaginary character. Yeah. What about the parents? The, par the parents are portraits. Um, of, of my parents, Patrick's an alter ego. Everyone else is more invented than that, and sometimes completely invented. You know? Sometimes combinations, you know. So. But even a portrait or an alter ego is 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 not a person, you know, because they're a person created by the author. So there's always a gap between the author and the character. Um, that that means that you. You still can't just translate, you know, back into life from the fiction. So I think fiction is is trying to, well, my fiction anyway. I can't speak for other people, but it, I'm trying to establish the dramatic truth of a situation rather than the the bare facts. And in order to do that, there has to be a an arena of points of view, you know, lots of different points of view on the same situation, and no one is given the the last word. You know. I'm curious, do you spend much time um, concerning yourself with the politics of, of writing uh, communities um, and the business of um, your books in terms of, you know, getting publicity and, you know, getting all the machinations of, of making well, here I am. I don't. I mean, I don't live in LA. I'll let you in on a secret. I live in. I live in London, so I flew all the way here to read to you. Um, I think that answers your question. Kind of flabbergasting, yeah, that you are here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any uh, film directors that you found compatible with how you see the world, or? Are you involved or interested in film at all? Um, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a novelist. I'm, I'm totally involved in, in this form. Um, lots of filmmakers have wanted to make films of, of my novels. And um, one of them has made a, a film of one of the novels, of Mother's Milk, which has actually been completed. But um, hasn't yet found distribution. It was just screened um, before I came here in London. So, but I'm I'm wedded to the the novel form. I think it's um. I think it's hard enough, you know, mastering one form without. I I yes I I have seen it yes absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite writers. Um, I, uh, the funny thing is, I'm, since I've started writing, I, I, I've, I read much less. I used to read fanatically. And I think the, the writers who, um, who impressed me most when I was most easily impressed by um, by other writing were very obvious people, you know, Proust, Henry James, Beckett, 
Joyce, you know, Nabokov, mm. you know, great writers. Um, so it's, um, yes. I think those right writers who, you know, writers in which the, um, and Flaubert, in which the style is, um, you know, at least as important as the, as the plot. American writers, yeah, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pinch, and um, Shaw. Um, I was—I suppose I was talking about the writers that hit me when I was when I was forming my ideas of of uh, what good style might be, and and when I was aspiring to be a writer. But of course, of course, there are lots of great American writers as well. <laughs> I just listed the ones that actually had an impact on me at the time. There's one lady at the back. You have a very accurate satiric ear for the dialogue, and obviously you use impersonations as well. And it strikes me to wonder if you have spent a lot of time in New York society, because there are some caricatures that seem very specific. I have, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in New York. I. Um, I can't think of, you know, not just because I'm, I'm, you know, conscious of what a libelous country this is, but, <laughs> but, um, no, but I really don't think I kind of, I, that I've, I've done a portrait of anyone American in particular. <coughs> Andrew Harvey um, isn't in the, in these books. He's, he's, um, no. But, um, and he's not uh, in New York society unless he's moved. I don't think he was when I met him. I met him at Eslin. It is true that I met him at Eslin um, in 90-whatever, four or something. I think he'd stopped living with Caroline by then. Why, are you his lawyer? <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to tell all of you that the books are for sale up at the front. Uh, Mr. Sanandam will be here for um, a little while longer to sign your copies. And I just want to thank you again for such a wonderful reading. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.